Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 254. My name is Terry Frost and this time a couple of movies about toxic masculinity. The first is a 1956 Doris Day movie which very few people have heard about called Julie. And the second is a 1988 Australian thriller called Shame starring Deborah Lee Finesse and Tony Barry. So yeah, there's a lot of nasty guys in these movies. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and we'll start talking about Total Pricks. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciations. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and that's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, no, you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Okay, so how the hell is everybody? Um, Yeah, we kind of had a very interesting couple of weeks here. As I mentioned previously on a podcast, the federal election happened, and kind of like some films noir, the bad guys won. I'm not going to go into a rant about why they did or how they did, but um, let's just say dirty tricks were involved. But um, the other, the most interesting part about it for me wasn't actually the election itself. Uh, as I said, I'm not going to talk about the election. What I'm going to talk about is what happened to me in social media after the election, which has totally spun my head around. Um, I put out a little bit of a, a piece about how I felt about the election result on Facebook. And it was kind of a bit of a rant, and it turned into a prose poem at some stage. And I got into a real rhythm with it and ended on a note of hope, which is the way one should do these things. And so I put it out there. I made it public for some reason on uh, Facebook rather than friend-locking it. And flash, bam, alakazam, out of an orange-coloured sky, it became viral. It went totally mad on Australian Facebook. I ended up getting it shared 5,600 times. And 11 or 12,000 people by this stage have left either a smiley or emoji or some kind of emoji on it. And I ended up with about 1,000 comments. About 40% of them were really fucking toxic. There are some people that kind of believe that going to somebody, a stranger's Facebook page, and insulting them is the way that one has discussions on social media. I kind of disagree with that. I don't go to other people, I don't go to strangers' Facebook pages and question their intelligence, their integrity, their morality, and pretty much everything else about them. But some people do. And so I got invaded by more fucking trolls than the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And that was kind of weird and, to be honest with you, it did trigger my PTSD a little bit. It was um, daunting 
The other aspect of it, which is kind of a mixed thing, is that I ended up getting about 400 Facebook friend requests. I really hit a note with a lot of people, and I was apparently what I wrote was expressing what they were feeling. And there were people who said they were in tears reading what I wrote. There were people who profoundly thanked me in a way that was almost embarrassing in a way, because some of us don't do praise of that sort very well. Uh, And I did friend up a number of them. There were some interesting people. And one of the things I wanted to do on social media was increase the diversity of the people with whom I interact on Facebook in particular. And so I've got a wide range of people from a wide range of backgrounds. Um, Now on Facebook, I've got about 300 new Facebook friends. I'm not following them because a lot of them are fucking nutcases on the left-hand side of things. But it was profoundly weird and I'm still kind of feeling the repercussions psychologically and emotionally from that tsunami of attention that came with that one heartfelt and passionate post that I did after the federal election. I've tried to spin it to my advantage. I'll be honest about that. I'm trying to direct the new Facebook friends and other people to the YouTube channel, which is going okay. It's slowly increasing in membership. Uh, You can find it on YouTube if you just search for Terry Talks Movies, because I thought I'd do a little bit of a simplification of the process of finding the YouTube channel. And I just did a YouTube video about other people who might have played James Bond. So that's kind of going okay as well. Um, yeah, social media has really grabbed me by the balls and not in a gentle, loving way. It's, um, as I said, it, it was profoundly daunting and profoundly shocking that that happened. And there's not really a clear path on how to negotiate that level of attention. Um, there, the toxicity of it was probably the worst part, but also the fact that uh, I actually had to unfriend some of the people I friended up because they were, to not put it too mildly, fucking crazy. And to be honest with you, I did play with it a little bit as well when I was in the mood, kind of going a little bit Cyrano de Bergerac on their asses, going a little bit Scaramouche on them. But as Americans already know, and probably English as well, conservative political people aren't gracious in victory. They kick even harder once they have achieved their stated political goals, or at least some of them do. To be fair, some of them do. And yeah, I kind of copped more than my share of it, which is weird. And I've learned things from it. Let's just put it that way. I have learned things from it. And I've learned to better protect myself on social media to a certain extent. But it was really something that didn't happen in previous decades. And it was mixed blessing. I mean, my writing got attention and my writing got praised. But I did cop shit as well. Anyway, let's move on to much nicer things. In what I've been watching. Um, And again, we're following the Richard Rule, which is we've got to start talking about the movies for the podcast in the first 15 minutes of the podcast. Let's see what I watched. Um, I went back to one of my favourite movies, one of my favourite guilty pleasures, Banning with Robert Wagner, Jilson John, and Anjanette Coma. Um, a golfing movie ostensibly, but it's a redemption movie as well. 
I rewatched that because I was in the mood for some comfort after all of the shit that I went through. And I, re- I liked it again. It's um, a lot of fun. I then did a movie from Netflix called See You Yesterday, which is about a couple of black teenagers in New York who invent a time machine and go back in time, um, or go forward in time, and then find out that one of their family members is shot by police. And so they've got to jump back in time and try to save this person. It's nice. It's a good movie. It's solid. The acting's solid by all the parties involved. It was produced by Spike Lee, so it's got a little bit of credibility there. And the leads are pretty good. Dante Critchlow plays Sebastian, the guy. And Eden Duncan Smith plays CJ, the young girl involved. And, yeah, it's kind of blends up nicely. Um, some societal critiques along with a time travel plot. And it doesn't soften the punches. The kids swear as normal people do. They really, um, you know, the acting's on point, the plot's on point, and there is a slight possibility of a sequel. It's left slightly open for a sequel. And for a not particularly large budget Netflix movie, it really punches above its weight. So you should check out CN yesterday. Um, I did watch the Hitchcock, the second Hitchcock, The Man Who Knew Too Much, because I was going to do two Doris Day movies, but I really didn't like it enough to do it. Um, it was good revisiting it, but I think that there's certain aspects of, um, let's say, appreciation of other cultures that I didn't like in the movie, and I kind of didn't want to go there with that one. So I didn't decide to put for this podcast The Man Who Knew Too Much because I don't think it's Hitchcock's best, and I don't even think it's Doris Day's best. I then found an Australian streaming service which streams cultish movies for free called Tubi, T-U-B-I. And if you're in Australia, you can get that um, on your smart TV. Uh, I'm using it through my Xbox. And it's got some crazy movies on it. It's got um, Forbidden Zone, the Danny Elfman, Richard Elfman movie, uh, it's got a whole bunch of cult films, uh, and I like it. I mean, uh, thanks a lot to Travis Johnson for hipping me to that on his Facebook page. But I've been watching things on Tubi for a little bit, and I watched a horror movie from 2015 called The Sand, which is about a bunch of young people who have a party on a beach and fall asleep at night and wake up to discover that there's something under the sand which is eating people. It's a little bit like Blood Beach, the movie with John Saxon from the 1980s, but it's fairly low budget. It was filmed in 12 days. The only person um, really with any kind of profile who's in it is Jamie Kennedy, who does a little cameo in it. But it works. It's an effective little B-horror movie, um, which, as I said, has has some fine acting in it, um, has some CG effects which are a little ropey, but are more limited by budget than lack of imagination and it was a bit of fun i enjoyed that uh then i went and saw a movie that i liked from the 1980s sorority babes at the slimeball bolorama which has brink stevens and um linnea quigley's in it and also michelle bauer uh it's about a bunch of um teenagers who or college kids at least who accidentally let a genie out of a bowling trophy in a bowling alley and things go fucking weird it's fun. It's not great, but it's um, one of those vulgar pleasures we all have from the VHS era. 
and revisiting that's been a lot of fun uh let me see what else we've got um i'm going to see brightburn tomorrow the um dark superhero horror film so i'm going to go see that tomorrow and i watched really bad movie which i'm not going to watch again movie 43 which has all sorts of people in it kate winslet Hugh Jackman, Dennis Quaid's in there, Ali Berry, Stephen Merchant, and a bunch of other people. Uh, yeah, that was on Netflix, but I'm not going there again. It's um, just as bad as I remember it being about five years ago. So I can spend my time a lot more fruitfully than watching that piece of shit again. On the other good side of things, uh, the last trailer for Quentin Tarantino's once Upon a Time in Hollywood dropped, and I watched that. In fact, I'm doing a YouTube about the trailer, a YouTube video about the trailer, and all the cultural reference points in it. The initial reviews are out, and yes, it is bloody good from the sound of things, and I'm looking forward to seeing that early next month when it does drop here in Australia. Uh, I'll probably get a lot more of the cultural references than maybe some of the other people who viewing it will mostly because I've racked up a number of birthdays and I was actually alive in 1969 when the movie is set. But, um, yeah, that's um, one of my look-forward-to movies for this year. And even the trailer has some incredible deep cuts from 1960s pop culture, which I had to dig around a little bit to find a lot of for the upcoming YouTube video. So I'm going to play some music now, and when I get back, I'm going to talk about the 1956 film Noirish. Doris Day film, Julie, directed by Andrew L. Stone, also starring Louis Jordan and Barry Sullivan, and I'll be back very soon with that.
That was just a little bit of Connor Euro Lounge for you by the Heinz Keisling Orchestra. And that is a track called Senorita from their album Poolside Party. And I kind of like that 1960s, 1970s loungy Euro trash music. It's a lot of fun. So let's talk about Julie. The uh, It's a movie that gets a lot of bad press. It turns up in one of the books done by the people who do the Razzie Awards of the 100 worst movies of all time. And I disagree with it because I think it's got a little bit of depth to it. I think the third act's a little bit um, melodramatic. But the first two acts really are relatable to a 21st century audience in a lot of ways. Here's the trailer before I get into any more detail. Before, Lyle's music had quieted my uneasy feeling that behind the warmth of his kisses was danger. But now he played with such savage fury. I was frightened. My suspicions haunted me. Was I married to a man capable of murder? I had to find out. Maybe my love for you was just as violent as yours for me. I lay there in his arms, panic-stricken, waiting for my chance to run for my life. In desperation, I turned to Cliff Henderson. I hated to drag Cliff into this. Lyle was insanely jealous of him. Julie, this is Lieutenant Pringle, Mrs. Benton. How do you do, Lieutenant? Mrs. Benton, under the circumstances, the only thing that I can suggest is that you change your identity and get away from here as quickly as possible. It's just that, well, there's no island of safety for a woman in your spot. Hello? I could hide my identity in my old job as an airline hostess. You made a mistake, Judy. Terrible mistake. You're gonna shoot me? Get out of the way! I have a better idea. You're going to be in this airplane. High in the air. With nobody to fly it. As you can hear, that trailer's from a day when they didn't really give a shit about spoilers. Um, I like this film. I, I did like it more than I expected to for a couple of reasons. Uh, I'll kind of go through the plot a little bit. The, there is a bit of an indication of it in the trailers, but it's not particularly nuanced. Um, Julie Benton's a former airline stewardess who marries a famous concert pianist, Lyle, played by Louis Jordan, who's the least likely actor to have a character called Lyle. 
and she's been recently widowed before she married Lyle, and her previous husband committed suicide because he had some debts, and it got on top of him, and so he hung himself. Um, her friend Cliff Sullivan, played by Barry, uh, sorry Cliff Henderson, played by Barry Sullivan, who was in The Bad and the Beautiful, amongst other things. Fine character actor and very much a secondary role here, but he does it pretty well. Um, her husband, Lyle's jealous of Cliff. Now, there's a couple of things. Cliff doesn't seem to have any relationships, so he could be kind of coded as gay, even though he is supportive of Julian, but doesn't approach her in anything that nears a romantic love interest. Because even for the 1950s, it's not this kind of a story. So Lyle's insanely jealous of Cliff because he's basically insane. And uh, at the start of the film, we see Julie Doris Day's character walking through the country club where they're members, angry and, and kind of walking out to her car. Lyle jumps into the convertible with her and they drive away toward their home on the California coast near Carmel. And as she's driving... Lyle puts his foot over hers on the accelerator and won't let go. So right from the start, we know this guy's a fucking nutcase. He's um, insane, insanely jealous and willing to threaten both of their lives to keep Julie under his control. He's one of those kind of guys. And to be honest with you, anything Lyle does in this movie that seems melodramatic and over the top is not an exaggeration from real life because there are things I've experienced in real life and there are things friends of mine have experienced in real life that make Lyle look like a, a wuss. Julie begins to suspect, and, and rightly enough, that Lyle had something to do with the apparent suicide of her previous husband and he admits it to her. One night she, when she questions him about it, he admits it. Now, the thing is, you got to remember, this is 1950s America. You can't testify against your husband in court for a crime against somebody else besides yourself and there are only a limited number of crimes that um, women could in any circumstance um, charge their husbands with in america like in australia there wasn't rape within marriage laws for instance at this time so women had very little legal recourse against a husband as that trailer shows the cops are telling her that there's not really a safe haven for a woman with a psychotic husband chasing her. Uh, that's why they advise her to change her identity and to disappear because there are no legal means by which she can be protected unless a, crime, a criminal act actually occurs. There are no apprehended violence orders or anything like that to keep him away from her because he's her husband and this is the 1950s and it probably gives you a, a slightly better understanding of why the women's movement of the 60s and 70s was so very important. And, of course, Julie has to go back to work as a stewardess because the economic disadvantage of leaving an abusive partner is very much there. And there's actually a discussion that's going on here in Australia at the moment too about the ways in which men hide their wealth during divorces so that they don't have to make reasonable recompense to uh, women who divorce them and all that kind of thing. So these issues, this movie, which is a light melodrama, it's very much a minor Doris Day movie. It sits between things like uh, Calamity Jane, which she filmed not too much before this, and going on to do stuff like Pillow Talk. And it's a Doris Day movie where Doris Day actually gives us a nuanced 
complicated character who's not endlessly cheerful and perky. I mean, she does sing the theme song at the start of the movie, and it's not a, a particularly happy theme song. It sounds like a rejected Nat King Cole ballad in some ways. But we're getting a complicated character here um, with a complicated set of problems, which didn't really get addressed too much in mainstream American cinema of the time. This movie would have been so much better if somebody like Ida Lupino, who was doing movies with feminist issues like The Bigamist, she was directing movies like that at the time, um, had have come on board. This may have been a major picture for the time. Now, it was made by Doris Day's own production company, which she had with her husband, Martin Melcher. Um, she didn't want to make the movie particularly because um, it had too many echoes of her first two marriages before Melcher. And as the subsequent decade after this film was made shows, Melcher basically pissed away all of her fortune and she had to go and do really bland TV shows like the Doris Day Show just to kind of get some money because her husband, before she left him, bankrupted her. And by the way, there were the parents of Terry Melcher, who was the guy that um, Charles Manson was looking for when he murdered Sharon Tate and her friends up at Cielo Drive in 1969, which of course is the theme of Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, or at least one of the themes, there are a number of them, and part of it is the Manson murder. So <laughs> this movie links up to those in an oblique way. Now, I said the first couple of acts are good. Uh, there's... Uh, the stalking of Julie by Lyle, which gets to some creepy levels, and the cops do become involved at, at some stage. And it's interesting watching the police work that goes on. There's a lot of police work where people have to look things up and find out where Julie is staying, where she is, all that kind of thing. And one of the things I thought, and you kind of do this with movies that show police procedurals, in a sense, from another decade, if there was an internet and if there was social media and if there were mobile phones, a lot of the drama in this movie would have been dissipated. Um, they would have been able to find where Julie was. They would have been able to contact her employers at the airline a lot simpler. They would have been able to call her on a mobile and warn her that Lyle was stalking her. And um, a lot of other things may not have eventuated the way they did in this movie in a more contemporary era. Uh, there are some nicely dramatic scenes in this one. Some of the scenes in Carmel where she's confronting her husband are very effective. There's a scene where Lyle is stalking um, Barry Sullivan's character, Cliff, through a farmyard. And that kind of works well. It's got a very kind of stark black and white um, look about it, which is very kind of film noir, a little bit John Alton. And it does work. I think that there are some moments where the editing could have been tightened a little bit to increase that drama. But again, it was made on a fairly limited budget, mostly with um, Doris Day and her husband's own money. And so there were some kind of budgetary limitations and, and editing is always expensive. You've got to do a lot of things to edit a movie in those days. It's not just the way I edit videos where I just sit in front of a computer and then upload it there's um, a lot of processing to do which costs a lot of money and so cutting getting the edit a lot more sharp is a non-trivial cost in a movie in the 1950s but in spite of that the tension does work well the third act is where things start to go really bug fuck crazy 
And it's probably the part that gives the movie the kind of reputation that it has. And that is, Julie gets on the plane because she's been caught in late. Somebody else is sick, so she's got to take a uh, late-night flight. Um, and she gets on the aeroplane. Lyle kind of stalked her. And he gets on the plane as a passenger with the intention of um, killing her. And you've got to remember, this is a 1950s, so you could get onto an aeroplane with a pistol. Again, another aspect of the movie that wouldn't play um, in the era we're in. And um, the cops kind of alert the aeroplane and alert the pilots, and they try to work out a plan to confront and um, overwhelm Lyle without damaging the plane, and or the passengers for that matter. So in that sense, it kind of presages some of the airport movies um, and, of course, Flying High, a.k.a. Airplane. Um, in um, Well, particularly Airport 1, I mean, with the Van Heflin character with the bomb, there's a little bit of that kind of feel about it. So this movie is a bit ahead of those ones. And so Julie, as the stewardess, has got to kind of work with the other flight crew to try to get... Lyle defused and as the trailer says doesn't go well so what happens is he shoots the pilot he shoots the co-pilot who's badly injured and so the stewardess being Doris Day's Julie has to land the aeroplane um Lyle is shocked by the co-pilot who's played by an actor I do like a bit Jack Kelly who a couple of years later played James Garner's brother in the Maverick TV series. So she's got to be talked down and, and land the plane. A doctor's got to keep her co-pilot alive, and the doctor's played by an, um, an actor called Barney Phillips, who turned up in a couple of Twilight Zones, amongst other things. And so it suddenly turns into a totally different kind of movie in that third act and becomes a kind of aeroplane melodrama and an aeroplane thriller, which I think kind of doesn't add value and even though of course it adds threat in the sense that if she doesn't do this right they're going to die in a ball of flame but it kind of diffuses the tension in that the focus no longer becomes Doris Day's character becomes the aeroplane and landing the aeroplane and one of the virtues this movie has is that a lot of people online who are knowledgeable in such matters say that they were accurate in the technical stuff about landing a DC-4. So there's that. But I really think that while it's a very bold idea to have her have to land the aeroplane, the weird thing there is that the main conflict, which is between her and Lyle, and between her getting her autonomy and freedom, which she does maintain pretty well throughout the film, is kind of dealt with and then you've got to deal with the aftermath of which is landing the aeroplane and all of that kind of thing so it becomes a totally different movie which doesn't in some ways fulfill the promise of the film though there is a nice final shot with Doris Day's face on the end credits where she's sitting in the cockpit and she's landed the plane and she's sitting there kind of just shaking and nerve-wracking so it's not a comfortable ending uh it doesn't have an ending where, you know, she finds a new boyfriend or anything like that. It's very much this woman has survived the trauma 
kind of ending, and that, that part works. But the whole bit with the aeroplane and the um, and the gun and Lyle going bug fucking and finding the most sadistic way to kill his wife as possible, even though it's psychologically true to that kind of a character, for me, it just doesn't work. I think there may have been other ways of doing it, which would have been maybe truer to it being a full-on film noir and for the focus to remain pretty steadily on the antagonists. So that was a bit of a mistake. But anyway, I enjoyed the film. Um, I do like the fact that it was addressing issues that weren't particularly being addressed at the time. And it did it for most of the film in a very sensible and compassionate kind of way. Anyway, it's time to take a break. Now, when I get back, I'm going to talk about Shame, a 1998 neo-Western uh, set in Western Australia and starring Deborah Lee Finesse and Tony Barry. It's really good. This town has a secret. A dark, shameful, well-kept secret. No one talks about it. They've just learned to live with it. It takes a stranger to explode the silence. How far is she going to take this? This time you're going to jail. And get them to fight back. You really, Liz? Really get them all? No sense in leaving any out. Then I will too. Well, get them, Liz. Get your girl to drop it, Tim. I could charge you. Charge me? And when will you start on the fun-loving boys? In a town divided by fear. It's a pity she didn't finish you off. He's smiling. He thinks he's got you right. Lift your knee up right into his balls. Do you understand? I didn't bring her up for this. Do you think I like it? Do you think I like watching every shadow and jumping at every sound? They are fighting to escape the shame. By the way, this was remade as a 1992 American television movie starring Amanda Donahoe and Dean Stockwell. Don't bother with that one because it's a piece of shit. This is the good stuff. Uh, some people may say it's Ozploitation, but I think it came enough after Ozploitation for it to not really be considered in that pantheon. Um, Shame was written by Steve Jodrell, who's done a lot of episodic TV since and has a lot of kind of credibility as a run-and-gun director. Uh, the cast is really great. We have, of course, Deborah Lee Finesse as Asta Cadell, a woman who rides a, dirt, a mud-covered motorbike. By the way, it's a 500cc Suzuki Katana, if you're wondering, into uh, a country town in Western Australia, was filmed in a town called Tujie, which is 87 kilometres northeast of Perth. But the town itself is called Ginbarak. In the fictional narrative, Australia's got a lot of country towns like that. Um, kind of Wake and Fright would be the, the other one. This would make a great companion move. If you're going to do a double feature, Wake and Fright and Shame would really work. And by the way, this isn't the same movie where Michael Fassbender gets his kid out. Very much the opposite. So she's um, had a bit of a prang on the bike, hit a bunch of sheep at night time. The sheep were being um, 
herded, you know, were hanging out on the long paddock, which is the sides of the roads. She hits that, bike, limps in on the bike into town and has to wait a couple of days for parts to repair the katana. She goes into a pub which is full of um, the kind of guys who hang around in pubs during the daytime. The town's got a very interesting social mix. A lot of the women work at the meatworks, but their men can't find work, so the men hang out at the pub. The meatworks um, is the only employer in the town. It runs 24 hours a day, so basically a third of the town are shift workers. And as Asta goes into the pub, uh, there's a lot of kind of wolf whistling and uh, suggestive comments made, which she pretty much ignores apart from uh, giving one guy a verbal serve about it. Uh, we meet the local cop, played by an Australian actor who had a very long career, mostly on television, called Peter Arnson, who's patronising to her. And she ends up at the local um, mechanic's place, a guy called Tim, played by Tony Barry, again a fine Australian actor. And I shouldn't hit the microphone when I gesture. Uh, yeah, Tony Barry, really fine Australian actor. He's got a lot of credibility and gravitas. And his character goes through a lot of changes in this movie too. He's got basic decency about him, but the decency isn't allowed to flourish until it's, he gets challenged in certain ways. And he kind of goes against the groupthink of the town. Now, I'm trying not to do too many spoilers on this one because I do want you to see it. Um, Asta kind of crashes with the family of the mechanic. They've got a little bit of a um, shed out the back which has got a bed in it, so she stays there. And she notices the first night she's there that Tim's daughter, Lizzie, played by Simone Buchanan, uh, comes out of a car and she's obviously been injured and beaten in some way. And as we later find out, raped. Her mother and her grandmother help her out. And uh, her mother, played by Margaret Ford, tells Tim off for not being a man. So Asta has to stick around this town for a couple of days in it, and it's got an incredibly toxic masculine culture. And the bottom line is that the young men of the town are raping any women they can get their hands on and they're getting away with it because one woman went to the police and the father of the mother of the person who raped her got a high-powered lawyer for the defence and the case was dropped. And there's some implications too that the mother, who also runs the meatworks, is paying off women who come to her about her son raping them. And the movie goes at such a nice measured pace that you do see a whole bunch of other people who are affected by this. Um, Asta gets a lift um, through town in a car from a guy who uh, is jeered by a bunch of guys in another car. He pulls his truck over and gets stuck into a fight with them and gets beaten up by them. And it's only as time goes on we find out the reasons for that. A group of men raped his wife while he was off on night shift. So Asta has to navigate through this town. She's not putting up with any of this shit, but it's an incredibly dangerous place to be. Women walking threes through the town, whether it's by day or by night, if they possibly can, for mutual protection. And nobody seems to be able to break out of this toxic culture that's in the town of Jim Brack. 
So you, I mean, the name Shame is a kind of parallel with Shane, the movie, of course, with Alan Ladd, Gene Arthur, and Van Heflin. But they take some interesting diversions from that template in a lot of ways. It's also a little bit Bad Day at Blackrock. And all up, it's a kind of feminist neo-Western. Or not even a humanist neo-Western as much as anything else. Because, and there's a nice escalation in the sense of menace. It starts out fairly low-key with wolf whistling and comments. And then throughout the film, as the women, helped by Astor, who turns out to be a barrister, give yeah you know, they give each other strength and there's she's the catalyst that gets the women in the town to stand up against these men and she's also the catalyst for a lot of women networking with each other and for tim to make a stand on behalf of his family movie started out because the um writer the main writer of the movie beverly blankenship saw mad max the original mad max movie and she got the idea to write a movie about a woman on a motorcycle she talked over with Michael Brindley, her co-writer, and they decided they wanted to make it as a modern-day Western, so she wrote an 11-page treatment, got finance from the Women's Film Fund for a first draft, and it went from there. Uh, the movie didn't have a really big budget particularly, and they shot it over six weeks in 2D on Super 16mm, so even with a decent quality copy of this film, you're not going to get um, Blu-ray sharpness under any circumstances. There was also a lot of pressure put on the film by various interests to make Astor much more of a vigilante character and to kind of go that route as far as dealing with the circumstances in the town's concern. There are times when she fights the men and she's quite effective at um, you know, rough-and-tumble roughhousing, but it's not a, that kind of movie. It really doesn't go that route. The rule of law is respected because she's playing a barrister. She's a character playing a barrister. She's a um, an officer of the court. And so she tries to do things by the, through the law. She's very experienced at what she does. She talks things over with the women. She gives them advice. She tells them how tough it's going to be to go to court if they do raise charges against these men. And so she's, you know, she's got, she knows who she is. She's got a solid core of knowledge and self-belief. And she inspires women to make a stand. And in case you're wondering, the name of Deborah Leifaness sounds familiar. She's married to Hugh Jackman. But that's the only time we're going to mention that. Uh, the movie really worked for me. I love the escalation of it. Uh, there are some bits that seem slightly melodramatic. And obviously that is for didactic purposes. But the acting is all fine in the film. So maybe Cannon is very good. Tony Barry is very good. A lot of the supporting actors who are not people with a hell of a lot of acting experience come across as genuine. And the mobs of men in the town, some of them played by actors, some comedians as well. There are a couple of people who used to be stand-up comics among the ensemble. And uh, people like Colin McEwen, who did comedy on TV, and Matthew Quartermain are in there. But, yeah, that sense of menace and the sense of the hostility of the bar of a pub, country pub, towards women is something that I saw. I mean, I was in pubs in the 80s in country towns. I lived in the country in the 1980s. And they are 
crazily testosterone-mad environments, particularly on a weekend or particularly when a town's not doing really well. So that part rung as genuine. And when I was living in Dubbo, I saw a few pub brawls that were really um, quite brutal. I stayed well away from them because I wasn't stupid. But uh, you can't avoid that kind of violence if you're going to hang out in a pub in a country town at that particular time. These days, it's um, you know people won't go to the pubs if they're violent, so there's a lot more bouncers in there. But, um, yeah, that's not entirely inaccurate in the way it portrays the culture of certain country pubs at the time. Uh, this movie really works. It's strong. There's a tragic ending. I'm not going to try to whitewash that. I'm not going to tell you what it is, though. And it is very much unlike most other Australian films that I can remember. Um, having that strong female protagonist, having that respect for the rule of law rather than going all exploitation vigilante and realising that sometimes there are costs and victims to following the rule of law and, and not trying to kind of say that's a miracle cure for the ills of a town makes the movie a much more satisfying and a, a grown-up experience. It really doesn't play to the expectations that we have of this kind of cinema. It, in fact, actively goes against them, but with great purpose. And for me, my experience of viewing it was actually informed by all the toxic masculinity and toxicity that I'd been experiencing while I watched it from social media, where I dared to disagree with people on a certain power trip and on a certain side of politics, who thought they had the right to attack me merely because I disagreed with them. And so I was very much kind of in the headspace to be emotionally affected by this movie much more than I might have been had I been casually watching it while drinking a cocktail out of a coconut under a palm tree with no worries in the world. If you're interested in watching the movie, you can find copies of it around. I got mine on eBay pretty cheaply, though if you're in Australia, the big yellow DVD shop may have some copies. If not, you can definitely locate them without breaking your bank. But I think that if you're an Australian movie fan, and particularly if you're a fan of Australian action cinema, even though this one is very much different from the usual revenge porn kind of stuff that you get in um, a lot of Australia's exploitation movies, it's a movie for men and women to watch, though I wouldn't recommend it particularly as a date night film. I think it's a little harsh for that but I, I think it's righteously harsh i think that the fact that the filmmakers don't go soft on any aspect of what's happening in the town of jimbarak and don't even underestimate the profound effect it has on the whole society and particularly the women of the town is um important though there is a really nice scene of resilience where the women are sitting around just having a chat and a drink together in someone's backyard and joking about things and there's a beautiful moment of kind of bawdy resilience that comes up there and it's one of the things in the movie that lets Asta commit to helping these people because she knows that they need her help and she knows that if she does help them take a stand, 
there's an innate resilience and strength in these women that will enable them to do what they need to do to address the criminal issues in the town. And I like that. Uh, it's a kind of honest moment in the film, which no men are involved in, except for the fact that Tim comes in later on and they have a giggle. But it's a whole bunch of different women getting together. Yes, it doesn't pass the Bechtel test, but a lot of it isn't It isn't about that. It's more about the resilience and women networking and supporting each other. And I like that scene a lot. It's one of my favourite scenes in the movie because women talking about their lives and in a country town and in their situation that inevitably involves their families. But, yeah, it, it really is well done. And I would have loved this movie to have been more high definition, but of course it wasn't possible at the time. These days, even a movie of this type with this kind of budget can be done with such beautiful cinematic sharpness. I could do it with what I've got here. I can make a 4K cinematically sharp, you know, 2.35 to 1 ratio feature film with what I have in the house now. But in 1988, it was crazily expensive to do so. But uh, if you haven't seen Shame, please watch it. It's um, an important piece of cinema. It's an important piece of um, feminist cinema. And it's like Bad Day at Black Rock and other films like that. It shows a respect and an acknowledgement of the importance of the rule of law. It's not somebody going off the track with a gun and blowing away the bad guys. It's not Mr. Majestic or Billy Jack or First Blood. It's something a bit more important than that, a little more grounded. I really liked it a lot. Anyway, that's it for this time around. Um, yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you very much to all of the Patreon supporters and to everybody else on social media who's said nice things to me over the past couple of weeks, which have been quite rough. Uh, as usual, I'm going to put the credits in to honour the Patreon supporters. And if you want to be a Patreon supporter, you can afford $1 a month. I know you can. And you can sling it through your PayPal at me at patreon.com slash paleocinema. Once I get my shoulder organised, I may well be putting episodes out a week early for the people on Patreon so that they can watch them a week, or listen to them a week earlier than everybody else. I'm just kind of playing around with that idea at the moment. But anyway, look after yourselves. Watch some good movies, watch some bad movies, watch all sorts of movies. And I'll be back very soon with a uh, Martian Driving podcast and then with a Paleo Cinema podcast as well, once more. And I'll play a bit of music after the trailer as well, after the credits, sorry, as well. I'll see you guys later. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema podcast and Martian Driving podcast, done in a style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolour consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, 
Tammy the Donut Wrangler, Tim, our New York Unit Director, Rabbi Steve, our Spiritual Advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our Director of Monster Effects, Dylan, our Goat Wrangler, Eric, our Set Security Lead, Richard H., our Set Photographer, Mark D., our Extra, and David L., our Extra, Kerry H., who is the Accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CGFX technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. We really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. Down a mile of people and 